I don't belong here. I didn't kill anyone. That list, it's just a coded list I kept of some of my mates in mind. What hurts me the most is how I'm portrayed as a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And that was what Randy Kraft said during his one and only interview that he ever did with the medium. Of he's, course. He's a real sweetheart. You're going to learn. Yeah, he doesn't need to talk about it for it to be horrible. Oh, and it is. So sit down and brace yourselves for this one. This is Jen. This is Becky. And this is Too Close to Home. Welcome. And we have come up with a brilliant title. Brilliant. Top notch. Um, kudos to Becky on this one. Oh, brilliant okay. title for our episodes that are particularly rough and gruesome and just, uh, you know what I mean? And it's called? Mushroom Stamp. <laughs> <laughs> and if you don't know what a mushroom stamp is, pause the episode, Google it, and then come back to us. Yeah. <laughs> Do a real quick goggle and you'll feel just as disgusted. And that's yes. exactly how this episode's going to make you feel. I'm going to tell you that's probably the only disclaimer that we're going to give to you about how rough this is because um otherwise that's all we'd be doing the whole episode every paragraph i'd be like stop disclaimer this shit gets rough sorry guys another mushroom stamp <laughs> that's mushroom stamps all over this bitch all over it all <laughs> night long <laughs> all night long <laughs> you'll know, in this episode we're going to kind of go back and forth over randy over the court over the victims victims will kind of just be sporadically thrown in so much information over him and all this stuff. And there's, spoiler alert, he is accused of 67 murders and was convicted of not all of them. He was convicted of 16. And to this day, he is the number one serial killer in the United States. Oof. Other people have made accusations such as, you know, the, who was it, the Ridgeway, Greenway killer? Oh, yeah. Who said uh, he did like 200, but he was convicted of far, far, far less. Yeah, they, it was... They, they sometimes do that because they want to do one case at a time just so they make sure they get a hole in one. And then sometimes they're just trying to get justice for the family. And if they've got 16 murders are being convicted of, then I guarantee is probably going to be a huge amount that he didn't get convicted for. Yes. Oh, and actually, I'm sorry. I misspoke. He is not the number one. He's actually the number two. But number two of the current time. Jennifer, do you want to guess who the number one serial killer is? You already know. Is it Dean Coral? It's not. Gacy? Nope. Giles DeRay. Oh, is he really? He is the number one <laughs> in the history. I with didn't know that. Randy Kraft. I fucking didn't up. do all my research. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, 200 you is how many he me was. You something. Yes. Oh, I love it. Number one. To this day, he is number one. So. Oh, such a life bulb. You know, if you're going to be number one or number two in life. I really hope it's not that. <laughs> I really hope it's not. All right, so let's dive right in. Randy Kraft was born on March 19, 1945. He murdered a minimum of 16 young men between 1972 and 1983. The majority of the men he killed took place in California. But don't worry, he went other places too. Oh, great. He's believed to have committed rape and murder of up to another 51 boys and young men, totaling 67 lives. He was dubbed the scorecard killer, but was also referred to as the freeway killer. While on his killing spree, it was later found that two other men were committing hideous crimes along the freeways at the same time. So while he was out there killing folks along the freeway, there were two other serial killers as well. We'll briefly talk about one. The other one, I didn't go into him too much. At the time that there were the three freeway killers, all three of them were gay. All three of them mutilated the victims horrifically. And all three had unimaginable body counts. Ooh. All doing this shit at the same time. They only differed by the disposal of bodies. So the way they got rid of the bodies was the only thing that was different about the three. While gay serial killers make up only 5% of killers, three of the kings of body counts was John Wayne Gacy, Dean Carell, and Randy Kraft. Aww. Well, and I guess if you really wanted to go way back, then you could throw in Giles, yeah. too, because he was... Well. We've already well. done Dean Coral, so like now we have to do Gacy. Gacy. I we mean, have to. and I ha I know a stupid amount of knowledge on Gacy. <laughs> like one of Jennifer's when is it gonna come talents. into play? Oh, buddy, I got you with a podcast. <laughs> when Kraft was arrested, he had a coded list of thinly cryptic references to his victims. He also enjoyed collecting trophies. 
It is believed that he had an accomplice for many of his crimes, although he has never admitted to this, but he's also never admitted to the murders. So later on, we'll go into theories about what I think about him having an accomplice and what other people think about him having an accomplice. And then we'll see what you think, Jen. <laughs> Early life of Randy started when he was born in California in 1945 as the fourth child and the only son of Opal Lee and Harold Kraft. Oh, I like that name, Opal Lee. Right? Adorable. <laughs> she was a good mom, too. His family moved to California at the outbreak of World War II. His family lived a modest life. From all accounts, he had a normal, hardworking, good parents. His mother always found time for the kids, but his dad was described as being distant from the family. It's like his mom baked cookies and all that kind of crap, but his dad was, like, not super involved with the kids. He kind of left it to her. Which, I mean, was probably normal for that time period, right? Girl, literally my next sentence says, but to me that seemed normal for the time. (laughs) (laughs) Because it did. That's just kind of how it was. The fathers worked. The women took care of the house and did all of that. Yeah. His sister said, oh, my main reference comes off the book Angel of Darkness. And uh, there was a lot of interviews with the sisters. And they even said they doted on him. He was the only boy. They were older than him. They were always coddling. Someone was always tending to him. Um, But he was known to be accident prone. Uh, He had an incident where the family took him to... they. The whole family went to go look at a house they were going to purchase and had a bunch of those concrete steps walking up. Randy was only one, and he fell down the steps and was knocked unconscious. Oh, head trauma. They And that comes in later during the court. Mm. So he, they rushed him to the hospital. He was still unconscious when they got to the hospital. He eventually came through. The hospital said, ah, he's all right, and they sent him on his way, which is how you did it. When I was unconscious when I was a kid, they did the same thing. Like, fine. Rub the dirt on that shit. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, I did not go on to kill people. Yeah. Yet. Yet. <laughs> Yet. Keep trying her, okay? Fuck <laughs> around and, and find, find out. out. <laughs> By sixth grade, he had tested out of um, school to be clever enough that they moved him to accelerated classes. This is when he became very interested in politics. He's also oh, very God much... damn it. Like, they always do a couple things. Like, Gacy always. was into politics. He ran for stuff. Uh, what's his name? Uh... Bundy, he wanted to be a politician. Mm-hmm. God damn. Yep. They, they, I mean, he they wanted say to be a politician as well. Politicians are psychopaths, so. Just saying. Seems <laughs> to be true. <laughs> uh, he was very much a Republican and aspired to become a senator. Of course. Randy had two close friends in high school, and they became known as the Three Musketeers. They founded a political club in high school. And Randy and his friends, they would wear white starched shirts, ties, and horn-brimmed glasses. Were they Mormon? Nope. They just liked to look like they were in like politics. Demons? Like demons? <laughs> yeah. They were, they were a little weird. I'm sorry. I don't want to call anybody weird. They were a little unique. Very, oh, a little very inclusive. Most teachers said he was a good student. They had no issues with Randy. But his high school chemistry teacher failed him. He said Randy always acted as though the rules didn't apply to him. He said he wouldn't do his chemistry work, and not because he couldn't do it, but because he just decided he wasn't going to do it. No. Yeah. Ballsy. So, and he knew he was a good student, knew he was smart, and he knew he was going to graduate and that he couldn't stop him. So he just did as he pleased. He played in the high school band, and he was not involved in what they called the social circle. Mm. He did his little group of his politics, hung out with his little friends, but outside of what he did with school, he didn't hang out with the kids or anything. His little group did participate in practical jokes, such as they snuck into the high school one time and they planted a tree in the middle of the football field on Arbor Day. The principal <laughs> had like told everybody, you need to plant a tree. So the boys snuck in and did that. And that was like their, look at you badasses. Yeah. So you can see why like he was just like a normal kid. You yeah. Know? Kind of what probably would have been like the nerdy group. But right. we're going to show them. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. During the summer, Randy and his friends would spend time at the beach whistling and looking at women. He did date a few girls, but people were already starting to speculate if he was homosexual. Mostly this was the teachers. When they interviewed the chemistry teacher, he said they would talk about Randy and how they all thought he was gay. But the kids didn't so much because he would go gawking at women and whatnot with them. Yeah. He was was good enough to cover it from his classmates, but the the adults were like... "Ah." I've seen this play out before. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) He went on to college at Claremont's Men's College, where he had got a scholarship to go, and he earned a degree in economics. His first year in college is where 
he entered into his first homosexual relationship. In 1964, he began working as a bartender at a local cocktail lounge that catered to gay clientele. And he was still in college while he was working there. He was known to travel. It's just a job, guys. Just a job. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you got to go in there and that's <laughs> He was known to travel to areas to have casual sex with hustlers. And hustlers in that time was basically a term for male prostitutes. So I was like, what is that? How did they get a cool name like that, though? I know. We're going to call women whores, but male prostitutes are hustlers? I know. Like, that's some bullshit. It is. (laughs) But again, you know, women, we always get the short end of the stick. Yeah. We really get the shaft. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, sorry. I couldn't miss that. Good. Dun dun dun. (laughs) he did not initially reveal his sexual sexual orientation to his parents but he would bring up bring males home that he's in relationships with but he just referred to them as friends which i'm like surely your parents had to have an idea when you kept bringing dan your friend home for the holidays (laughs) for the holidays and for sleepovers and but i guess that was like the blind eye at the time i mean just like how they looked at lesbian women like they would be uh spinsters and It's just cheaper to live together. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Friends described Randy as normal for the most part. This is the first time that people said, this was during Randy's college time, that he would just disappear for days at a time. They said he would just be gone. That it would be like the weekend and Randy would just leave. And nobody would know where he was. And he'd come back after a few days and be like, I just like needed time to like get away from everything. So nobody really ever suspected that he was out doing anything. They were just like, yeah, college is a lot. This is what he does. Yeah. In 1966 was the first time he had encounters with law enforcement. He was arrested for lewd conduct after he propositioned an undercover officer for sex. Since he had no previous arrest, no charges were filed. They are basically like, don't do it again. Get out of this area. Get on out of here. Now, this all came out his junior year, and people found out about him almost being arrested. By his senior year in college, his grades were low. He was drinking, taking drugs, and gambling. He failed out of his first semester and had to extend his graduation by eight months. So after he graduated with this economics degree, he didn't really know what the hell he was going to do. So what do all good serial killers do? They join the military. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) So he graduated and he joined the Air Force. Now, he had a college degree, but I'm guessing at the times, he had been in ROTC for a little while, but he had dropped out of it. So if you didn't complete ROTC, apparently even with a degree, you couldn't come in as an officer. So oh. he had to go in as enlisted. Um, he Take him was down a peg or two. Yeah, and he was not happy about that. I bet Randy thought very highly of himself. Of course, and he was very smart. So as he should think that he, but he was probably like a textbook narcissist, you know, in a way, like where he thought he was hot shit. Everybody, you know, it's everybody else's fault if something happens. Actually, he nobody ever said he was like that. No. No, yeah. they just said he was really smart and, you know, prideful in what he should do and felt, you know, that sometimes he should do more than what he is, but no more than the rest of us. You know, yeah. I should run this motherfucking business. We yeah, all kind of right? think that to a point, you know, <laughs> that's what from all the interviews I kind of gathered uh, after graduating, he joined the Air Force and his job was supervising the paintings of test planes. Not so nice. So was there lead in that paint? Maybe, maybe that led to some of his. But did you know that, like, there's a, a whole theory behind, this is like a whole side thing, that at one time, paint, uh, not paint, but gasoline was leaded. And the emissions from that possibly can be a, another cause for why we had a boom of serial killers for a, a mm. period of time, especially during, like, the 60s, 70s, and until, like, it became unleaded. And since then, the decline for serial killers, it's went down some violence and all these other crazy things so that's like a theory interesting he probably was covered in fucking lead he was born what 1945 probably chewed lead window seals yes and when <laughs> when he was a child his dad bought an old barracks and reform re uh, modeled it into yeah. a home and you know military buildings were covered with lead paint oh, yeah that so. and what's that other stuff uh asbestos asbestos <laughs> yes asbestos is the bestest <laughs> that's what the military thought <laughs> Uh, Kraft told uh, friends that he felt this job was beneath him. And during his time in the Air Force is when he finally told his parents about his sexuality. Kraft had later wrote a friend. A friend he had this friend named Mac who he kind of kept in contact with. He was from high school through a lot of his life. 
And he wrote him and told him that his father flew into a rage and that his mother was more understanding but still disapproving. But she still loved him, still treated him good when he brought male friends home. <laughs> that she was nice to them, nice to Randy, but his dad. Which is pretty progressive for the mm-hmm. time because people treated, like, everybody who was gay or a lesbian or any of those, they had a pretty much a target on their back. It was very dangerous. Yes. And, uh, you know, she didn't let him say they were his boyfriend. She just made him still, like, go with friends. But at least she... Still loved him still. Yeah. This is when he did distance himself from his family for a little while. But all the way through uh, his arrest, conviction, everything, his family was still there for him. In 1969, he was discharged from the military after he told them that he was gay. This was obviously still the time of don't ask, don't tell. He was discharged uh, under a general discharge. And he knew this would affect him later on with jobs. So he petitioned to get it changed. And uh, they were like, no, sorry, bro. It is what it is. So he (laughs) kept the general discharge, which did hinder him some from jobs that he wanted. Right. So after he graduated, he went on to be a bartender at a bar called the Booty Shed. You mean the Booty Shed? (laughs) (laughs) That's what it was. (laughs) His first known sexual assault was in March of 1970. He encountered a 13-year-old boy named Joseph Francher. Francher was not happy at his home. His parents fought a lot, so he decided he was going to run away. He hopped on his bike. He had his brand-new shoes on his feet. Uh, He was well taken care of, and he took off and went down to the beach. While he was wandering around, he came upon Kraft. Kraft was just sitting on a bench watching. So the kid went over and was talking to him, and Randy gave him some cigarettes, and they sat there talking. Well, Kraft asked him if he had anywhere to stay. Joseph said no, that he didn't. And Randy asked him if he'd ever had sex. And the little boy said no, he hadn't. He said, well, I know a woman that'll have sex with you. Do you want to lose your virginity? So this 13-year-old boy, he's run away, smoking cigarettes, this dude, and has got some chick that'll give it up. Of course he's going to say yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so he goes back to the apartment, and he's like, all right, I'm going to live with this guy. I'm about to get some, yada, yada. While they're sitting there, Randy's giving him beers, and he asks him if he wants to take some pills. So... He gives him four red pills. Little boy pops them in his mouth. And then really feeling a whole lot. So a little bit later, he takes four more of the pills. This is when the boy said he started to feel drowsy. Mm-hmm. And he thought, oh, maybe I've just taken too much and drank too much. He said then he went into almost like a um, almost like a comatose state, except he was still awake. And he said he like couldn't really move or do anything. He just described himself. What do they himself, call that when you're dreaming? Lucid dreaming. Like yes. that. that. He said he was basically like just a flesh bag. Like he's just laying there on the couch and he couldn't do anything. But his oh eyes God. were open and he could still like look no, and see yeah, what was. Oh, that's awful. Oh, yeah. Kraft pulled out some Polaroid pictures and asked the boy if he'd ever had gay sex. He started showing the boy pictures. Well, boy, if he ain't never had sex, I'm sure he ain't never had gay sex or even thought about it. Right? <laughs> the pictures are different men, some women in sexual positions. Randy's in a lot of them performing sexual acts with people. Which is why I'm not sure that this was his first sexual assault, but it's just the first one they know about. Yeah. He then started undressing. Randy did. Took his penis out, started playing with himself, got aroused, and then stuffed it in the little boy's mouth and forced him to perform oral sex on him. This comatose little boy laying on the <laughs> laying on the couch. He said after he finished that, he told little boy to undress who could not because he's yeah. in this comatose state. Yeah. So he pulled his pants down and then proceeded to rape the little boy. Raped him over and over and over. Kid said all he could feel was horrific pain, and there was nothing that he could do to make it stop. After hours of doing all this, Kraft gets up, says he's got to go to work. Leaves the kid there, doesn't kill him, doesn't bind him or anything. I'm assuming because he was so... Uh, drugged he couldn't do anything yeah well the kid doesn't know how many hours went by but he started hearing knocking at the door and he was able to get up and go answer the door and it was two kids from the apartment young boys looking for randy and he said i don't know who that is or where he's at and he just slammed the door so the kid goes he starts getting dressed and he stumbles out of the apartment he manages to get to some people and they call the police police get there they take him to the hospital he has to have his stomach pumped The doctor told him if he would have taken two more pills, he would have died. That he was literally at that point. 
Oh they call God. his parents. His parents come up there. Keep in mind, he never told anybody he was sexually assaulted because he was so embarrassed. embarrassed. Yeah. Um, the first thing his parents said when they got there was, where are your new shoes? He had left his shoes at Randy's apartment. So he told them how to get back there. They went back. Nobody was at the apartment. They opened the door. They went in. They found the little boy's shoes. They got them. And Randy's roommate was a man named Jeff that Randy had started dating. He showed up while they were there, and he let them come in and search. They found some drugs in the apartment. They found a bunch of gay material. There was, like, posters on the wall and magazines. But the boy said he went there voluntarily. The boy said he voluntarily took the drugs and the alcohol, so they were not able to charge him with anything. And they didn't even write any tickets or anything about what they found. They literally told the boy, don't do stupid shit like that again. Oh, my God. His parents were pissed at him because... Yeah. You know, you're, like, mad at the parents, but then you think about it. He told them, I went to some random person's house and took drugs and alcohol. Yeah, they don't know anything about what actually happened. Right, so of course they're going to be pissed at him. Yeah, like, oh, you fucking knucklehead, you know. This kid comes back later during the trial, and um, he said that he never fully healed from the mental pain, that it just fucked up the rest of his life, and that the hardest part was healing from the physical pain, from his rectum being torn open and bleeding for weeks why it healed that he never told anybody about. because yeah, he just, was, oh, my God, that poor kid. Freaking heartbreaking, right? 13 years old, but you don't even know anything about that kind of, like, how to. Yeah, he said later on that the rest of his life, he was never able to have, like, a normal relationship with anyone, man or woman. He said it was basically like everybody scared him. Yeah. Like, this freaking terrible. In 1971, Kraft began working as a forklift driver in Huntington Beach. And Huntington Beach was known as, like, the gay area in that Mm -hmm. time. It's kind of like where all the gays went, where they lived, where they hung out. Um, At this point, his hair was long. He, throwback y'all, peroxided to get it blonde. (laughs) (laughs) That is way back. He wanted the streaks in it since he lived on the beach to look like it was (laughs) sun-kissed. No. He didn't have sun in at the time. Uh -uh, That's another old one. (laughs) I was like, oh, Lord. <laughs> um, he w- At this point, he was now cruising the beach in a van, and he will later change to a Mustang. He re-enrolled in college at Long State University, this time majoring in education. He decided to go into education um, off of his sister. His sister encouraged him to do that. He'd be a good teacher. I mean, what better place than to have him around young boys? Of course. <laughs> Jeff Graves, this was his boyfriend that he was living with at the time. Uh he also decided to go back for teaching. So they were going to do it together. No. Oh. Did he not have any questions about him with that boy? Or was that not the same guy? No, it was the same guy. They never really go into in any sources that I used about what Jeff Graves had to say about any of that. But Jeff Graves is into a, um, a little bit more rougher sex. He was into some BDSM. Yeah. Um, he was way more of a partier than Randy. Mm. Um, it wasn't uncommon for them to just pick up random guys, bring them home for threesomes, drug them up and stuff. They just never killed anyone together. Yeah. Um, so that we know of. I don't think he thought anything really yeah. unusual of the behavior, except like, probably didn't include me. Why yeah. Do that, alone? <laughs> that could have been so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> they started going to a popular gay bar called Ripples. They went there often. Like I said, they enjoyed partying, doing drugs. Randy was always said to be more in control of his drug use. He had learned early that if you take too much, you're no good. And you don't really enjoy it. You got to keep that happy medium. Where apparently Jeff was just wilding out. Um, Not after they began living together. Like I said, that's when Jeff came home and the police were there. Years later, though, all the partying catches up with Jeff. And Jeff ends up being diagnosed with AIDS and dying. But this is after him and Randy had parted ways. Randy never never did because he was more in control of that. Yeah. Um, so this time is when Randy starts continuing his ways of leaving for days on end. And this usually always happened when Randy and Jeff had been in a fight. When they got into a big fight, Randy would leave for a couple days. Mm. Which, again, when you look back, even looking back, you say, it's not unusual. Some couples do that. They get yeah. in a fight. One goes off and stays somewhere, you yeah. know. In the beginning, all the bodies did not have names. To this day, some bodies still don't. In the beginning, the police thought 
that this was kind of a hitchhiking angle, that whoever was killing all these people was just picking them up on the side of the road, killing them and dumping them. On February 6, 1973, the nude body of an unidentified male was found a couple of miles away from the base. He was thin, average height, and bearded. His only clothing was a brown sock jammed into his rectum. His only mark was a ligature around his neck. Sketches were posted all around and in the local newspaper. Nobody was able to come up with the name, but they did say that they had seen this guy doing tricks, and that's all anybody really knew about him. He was named John Doe 16, and to this day, he still has never received a name. Why the socks in the butt? Don't know, but you're going to see he does that and some other stuff quite a bit. But we'll never know because Kraft has never spoke about no. it. And he's in his 70s. And spoiler alert, he's still alive on death row. And he has never spoke about it and still maintains his innocence. You would think COVID would have got him. I know. <laughs> you know what I heard someone say one time and I was like, ain't that the truth? People like him, the devil don't even want him. No. And that's why he's still alive. Even the devil's like, nah, bro, we didn't got room down here for that. Yeah, mm, I'm not ready. That's a lot. <laughs> That's too much. He, I know I fell I'm from the heaven. Devil. But he went too far. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, that makes sense why people like him live forever. Nobody wants him. Mm-mm. Two months later on Easter Sunday, a passing motorist called in a body on the freeway on Airplane Hill. Airplane Hill was what all the kids called it because if you drove fast enough, there was a little dip and your car would go flying in the air. The corpse was dressed and wearing socks, but no shoes. He was 18 and had long hair. He had abrasions showing he'd been thrown from a car and a ligature around his wrist. He had a blood stain in the seat of his pants. His penis and scrotum had been cut off, and it was estimated that they were removed approximately 15 minutes before he died. He did this while he was alive. And probably they felt all of it just like that boy, where he was paralyzed, Mm -hmm. but definitely felt all that and later when the uh they did the autopsy on them they were able to say they know they were alive by the amount of blood that they lost mm -hmm, from their penis area that they were blood was still flowing when he removed it he had been sodomized he'd been suffocated but had the significant blood loss flyers had also gone out and he had been seen also where the hustlers hang out his name was john doe huntington beach john doe 52 wasn't as lucky as the others. He may have been killed on Easter Sunday as well, but they were never able to tell. His head was found behind a supermarket, his arms, torso, and right leg left by the roadside. His left leg was behind the buoy shed, which is where Randy Kraft worked. He had a ligature on both legs. His genital had also been removed, and his eyelids had been cut off so that he could not close them during the torture. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) He really wanted this guy to see everything he was doing, and apparently he was lucid enough to close his eyes, and Randy Kraft was like, no, no, no. That's how evil this bitch is. I know. Oh, my God. The body also showed signs of being stored in a refrigerator. His hands have still not been found to this day. Then Randy got a job as a teacher's aide. On a happy note. <laughs> Jesus Christ. This is when Randy. Like a wolf in sheep's clothing. Yeah. And all his coworkers always said he was super helpful, nice, mild-mannered. Mm-hmm. Randy started dabbling in computers when he was a teacher aide. He ended up getting a part-time job at Aztec Aircraft where he started working doing data processing tasks. Randy later ended up moving with some new friends that he had met. One night, Randy had the incident that all the friends were referred to as the Kitchen Massacre. I thought it's going to be better than it was, y'all. <laughs> with, a na- with a title like that, so snappy. <laughs> Apparently, so Randy had met these guys. It goes into real detail about all these guys in the book, but I don't really think y'all cared that much. Um, so one night, Randy had cleaned up the kitchen. He was a very tidy person. Uh, and when he woke up, the roommates had been partying and left a mess. So Randy trashed the kitchen they said he tore everything out of the cupboards threw it all over dumped trash all over the place like just lost his fucking business and then left a note saying he did it and then he left for the day they said it was one of the times that randy had ever lost his temper they said he was normally very calm and cool but when he lost his cool he lost it 
they sit to the point where you would be frightened when he did lose it. So but he the rest really of was a was, Jekyll and Hyde. Mm-hmm. One of the friends that hung out in the group was Maureen Eddie Moore. On December 26, 1972, 20-year-old Eddie Moore was found dead by a passing motorist. He had on only one sock. The other was shoved into his rectum. Moore was last seen leaving his barracks, and his body was discovered beside 405 Freeway. Autopsy showed he'd been bound by the wrists and ankles and beaten with the blunt object, and this occurred minutes before his death. He'd been strangled. His body also had numerous bite marks, including one on his penis. When you start going into the deaths, this is when people started suspecting that he had an accomplice because these were Marines. These were fit men, and they were all very young. And you, so you're not talking Marines towards end of retirement that aren't quite no. in the best shape anymore. These are young, Like healthy. probably right out of like basic when right. they're the skinniest and strongest they ever are, you know. And they're trying to figure out how he was able to succumb all these men and then how he was also able to push them out of a moving vehicle on his own. Hmm. So that's when you start thinking maybe he did have somebody with him. Yeah. And another thing that they never found out that I my more, call it morbid curiosity, I don't know, is where he was doing all these crimes at. Because there's a lot of speculation that they believe he did all of them in his vehicle, like he mm-hmm. killed all these people in his vehicle. But when they arrest him in his vehicle, there's no blood in his vehicle. There's no anything. And so where was he going to do all this? Which is what makes me think, too, that he had to have an accomplice. Because, I mean, are you just going down a back road and doing it? There's always the chance you're going to get caught. And you're, like, cutting their bodies up and stuff and taking your time with them. One, you stored in a refrigerator. So you couldn't have done that shit in your car. No. So where he did You're going to take this? it out of your car, put it in the fridge, then put it back in your car and dump it off somewhere? Yeah. Doesn't sound... And you're saying there's nobody else involved, just him. There's somebody, somebody else involved. And for somebody who's super OCD clean, you know, he's not going to want to mess up his car. When he had roommates. Yeah. So they just pop open the fridge and move the head to the side to get the milk, like, <laughs> and never said anything. They were all just sort of silly Randy again. <laughs> Damn it, Randy, I told you. Uh On July 30th, 1973, they found another victim. He was fully dressed except missing one sock, which was found stuffed into his anus. His penis was partially exposed. He had ligature marks around his neck. He had been dead for two days and been dumped for two days. He had teeth marks on his stomach and penis. He had marks from ropes suggesting that at one point he had been hitched up and suspended from a ceiling or some sort of railing before his death. So again, didn't happen in his car. No. The victim was Ronnie Weeby, 20 years old. And this is the first time they actually had evidence there had to be more than one person. They believed that two people had carried his body. Oh, Weeby was also, I think, his only straight victim. Hmm. Everybody else was homosexual. Um. This turned the investigation from gays killing gays to someone killing anyone and anyone could be a victim. Because before, as the time, not my opinion, they were like, ah, the gays are killing the gays. Nobody really cares. Yeah, they I mean, were the they lesser were, dead, like prostitutes and stuff. Like, bah, this is gross. Yucky, yucky. Just like um, when, uh, what's his name in Who Killed the Boys and they he did the um, lobotomies to him. Mm, no, I don't know. Dahmer. Um, and Dahmer had one of his victims, like, got out, and the police were, like, found the kid, and then um, he was like, oh, no, this is my lover. He's just had too much. And they were like, ooh, okay, ooh, both. Yes, that's how they treated this. You'll see later I'm going to repeat something the police said, and it was not words out of my mouth, but you'll see exactly how they felt about him. Mm-hmm. Um. But now that there was someone straight, they were all like, oh, 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 oh. Yeah. Excuse me? You mean I'm in danger as well? Exactly. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, let me give a shit. (laughs) Um, The last time anybody had seen him was at closing time at a bar. He was currently separated from his wife and dating another girl. Um, At 145, they said he wandered out to his car. He must have seen that had a flat tire because the next morning when his sister went looking for him, she found his ty- uh, car outside the bar with a flat tire. Um, he was found the next morning, and there were no drugs in his system but alcohol. Everybody had alcohol in their system. Everybody. After Weeby, the list just kept growing. December 29th, 
1973, hikers found 23-year-old Vincent Cruz Mestis. Except for shoes and one sock, he was fully dressed. The one sock was found up the rectum. (laughs) This time, someone had shaved his face and head. Don't know why. Both of his hands, man. Both of his hands were removed. Again, like he's like cutting crap off people. They never ever found any saws. They never found any um, machetes. I mean, you ain't cutting a penis off and hands off with a, a butter knife. No. Like they never were able to find anything of how he did all this stuff. To this day, they never found anything. I wonder if there's like a, because you know, like Dean Coral had his shed that he would do some of these things and le- like dispose of the bodies and had some of the, the s- instruments that he used. I wonder if he had something like that, but since he never talked. And that's why I really think I'm like, there had to be somebody else and maybe they were doing all this shit at their house. Oh, yeah, that's true, yeah. And Or they had a shed and that's why they couldn't link any sheds or uh, storage storage sheds, I guess what I'm thinking, or the shed like Dean Quarrel was a rented boat shed, mm-hmm. um, able to find any of it because it's not going to link back to craft because right. it was also commonplace then too for gays to use other names mm-hmm. and people just let them because they knew they were gay and they didn't want their real name listed on a lot of stuff because they mm-hmm. were targets of things. So he could have had shit in a different name. That's mm-hmm. true. And then back in those days, like everybody, you could have, you could make your own damn ID just about. Everything was mm-hmm. paperwork and things would get lost. And you, you got a just... laminator? You're good. You can make whatever you need. Yeah, right? <laughs> That's back when the state IDs were just laminated. Exactly. I do have Randy Craft's driver's license picture that we'll put on Facebook in case y'all want to see. <laughs> and like, I hate saying this, but he really wasn't a creepy looking guy at all. That's usually the ones that are like people say that Ted Bundy was really good looking and stuff. And he had this charisma that really would catch people's attention you know so people just didn't normally think of him in that way or he looked like what you would think Mm -hmm. would be a serial killer and that's randy craft in my opinion he didn't look like a serial killer he looked like if he sat down next to you at the bar and was talking to you you just talk back to him right and you wouldn't think anything about it he offered you a beer go out becky huh now we can never go back can't go to any more bars (laughs) i'm gonna think everyone that tries to talk to me is trying to kill me like Like, what's up what's your beef I'm not trying to be on your list. Let me know how you feel about cutting off genitals and putting things up people's butts. <laughs> Are you into that? Because I am not. <laughs> but somebody also asked Randy Kraft, one of his um, victims, how he felt about homosexuals and this and that. And Randy Kraft said exactly what they wanted to hear. Of course. So then they trusted him. His hands were removed and baggies were placed around the bloody, bloody stumps, like Ziploc bags. Don't know. The hands were never found again. Some wooden object, maybe a pencil, I don't know what it was, just a wooden object, had been jammed into his penis before oh, death. I don't even have one in the earth. Uh, mm-hmm. The killer ruptured his intestines Ugh. and then fatally strangled him. The last time that Vincent was seen alive was with his roommate. He told him he wanted to go draw. He was going to go up into the mountains. He gathered up all his art supplies, and he went up into the mountains. And that is where he was found dead. So it's like, Randy just like, finding folks everywhere that are gay men to kill. And Vincent was known to frequent um, bath house, they call them. Right. And uh, other gay areas. So I'm like, was Randy like meeting these guys and then finding out where they were going to be and just showing up and killing them? Because like, how'd you know Vincent was going to be up in the mountains drawing? Were you exactly. just like chilling up in the mountains waiting for someone to come up and then your gay friend from the bathhouse showed up? Yeah. I think he was making plans with these guys to have some kind of encounter with them and then killing them. Playing some long game stuff that we just don't know. But that's just me being an armchair detective. I mean, you're the best though. Second to you. Oh my God, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> On June 2nd, 1974, the nude body of Malcolm Little, who had just turned 20, was found propped up by a mesquite tree along Highway 86. His legs were spread wide, his genitals were missing, and a mesquite branch had been forced six inches up his rectum. He was an out-of-work truck driver who had just arrived in town the week before to visit his brother. He must have been the other straight one. Girl, they all, oh, so many of them. 
the night before. It makes me feel like like think of like Tiger King. He had to do that. He's like, uh, do you like gay sex? I don't know. Like, well, when you watch porn, do you want the guy with the little one or the big one? Well, the big one, of course. <laughs> well, you ain't all that straight. Like, are you having these kind of conversations, Randy? <laughs> oh, Randy just likes men, but he would occasionally accidentally pick up a straight man. But then yeah. I'm like, were they a straight man who was just on the DL? Yeah. You know what I mean? Because like, that was a very He was classic... killed by a serial killer. He was like their family and denied. Like, he would never. Yes. <laughs> if he showed up in that bathhouse, it was purely an accident. He didn't know no better. <laughs> He just thought that it was a male bathhouse. The boys went on one side, the girls went on the other. Okay. <laughs> the night before his death, his girlfriend had called him pissed off that he had left. Apparently, had been fighting. And they said that, I don't even know what this has to do with anything, but it just stood out in my mind. Said that she read him the riot act. And so then, I, yeah, I'm glad your face is confused as I was. I was like, I get to pause the book and I'm like, what the hell does that have to do with it? I know. Is the author just trying to fill blanks face right now? Like, Is I don't he know what's like, going on. Just trying to be an asshole about it. Like, <laughs> let me tell you about this bitch. She read him the riot act. She, she is had a the victim. Audacity. The audacity. It's on sale these days. <laughs> it is. I heard that. <laughs> so he decided he was gonna go back home. But he only had ten dollars. So he was just gonna hitchhike his way from California to Alabama. Oh my god. His brother took him to a freeway the next day, dropped him off to go hitchhike, said, last memory You couldn't has. even ask your brother, be like, let me have some money. Like, can you help me fly home or can you drive me home? You're going to be like, all right, bro. Good luck. I hope you make it to Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, and maybe because his brother used to be a long haul truck driver. He thought he just hitchhiked with truck drivers. He probably yeah, knew He's like, you know, the rules of the road, ass, grass, or... Cash. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait a second. What was that third one? I've always been too concerned with the ass or the grass. <laughs> I always knew I had those two on me, so I never needed cash. <laughs> don't hitchhike, kids. Don't hitchhike. No, don't do it. It's not It's not good at all. But I'm like, how much did a Greyhound bus cost back then? Because it's only like 80 bucks now, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's stupid cheap now. So I can't imagine how, like, what were you too good for the Greyhound? Right? You had $10. I feel like a bus ticket would have been like 2 yeah, like think about how much people made ten dollars a week not back to in victim those days. Shame. Not to victim shame because we're not he did die. Shame. We're just trying to look at a way to 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 handle this, <laughs> to put some humor in this because this is rough, real rough. Only twenty days later, on June twenty second, nineteen seventy four. Oh, by the way, these are back to back killings here. He has like no cool down period, none, because and he's getting away with it. So he's like probably getting more and more like you know what, fuck it, yeah, let's do this, keep it going. On June 22, 1974, the nude body of 18-year-old U.S. Marine Roger Dickerson is found off a dead-end street by a golf course. His killer, <clears throat> you ready for this one? Chewed his penis off. He chewed the whole fucking penis off, Jennifer, with his fucking <sighs> mouth. I feel like that would be so, like be like those really terrible gummies like the cheap ones you know what i mean and they just never cut and i'm like how would you do that when you're like that would take that has to take some serious effort also how sharp are your teeth randy Hmm? (laughs) and how much time and work did that take was the person alive when he did it because he would have like the blood splash because there's main veins down there yes he was oh my god he also about all that blood after he got done chewing off his penis, decided to chew his left nipple off. You know what? For shits and gigs, let's throw in a nipple. For shits and gigs. Why not? <laughs> oh my God, my nipples hurt now. Uh, yeah. He then sodomized him and then strangled him. The night before, Dickerson had been drinking at a bar with some friends. Apparently, he'd been wanting to get up to Los Angeles. And the only way these boys would get up there, because a lot of them were, you know, fresh out of school, were hitchhike have someone take him he told his buddies he found someone who would drive him to los angeles for the weekend and he left without telling anyone who that person was he was found with alcohol and volume in his system where is he getting all these damn drugs he had prescriptions for him but he was again smart guy so probably was shopping it well 
he made sure to use the amount of drugs he was supposed to use so that he constantly got his refills, constantly got. Mm. Mm-hmm. So he, some of them, I guess, some he didn't dope up. Some he got so drunk they were incapacitated. God, There's a couple of them that actually end up dying from alcohol poisoning. One guy's blood content was like .675. He was just a fucking tequila in the veins. Yes. God mm-hmm. damn. So some he wouldn't even have to use the drugs on. Oh, God. I just like it now it makes me think of every time that I've ever been laying in the bottom of my bathtub. Hating your life. Hating my life. Like, whoa. So like puking up, sick, drunk, which is the worst. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then imagine someone chewing your nipple off. No. Like all you can hope is like some of these guys were blacked out enough that they don't remember. They, maybe they were numb enough. Mm-hmm. God, I would hope. I hope so, too. Terrifying. On August 3rd, 1974, morning shift employees find Thomas Lee fully clothed. He's a 25-year-old waiter. He was laying half down a nine-foot embankment. He had died from strangulation. He was a regular at gay bars, and the last time he was seen alive was at closing time at the bar the night before. Some of these people I kind of skipped around and left out all the stuff about what happened to him because it gets a little hard to keep swallowing, no pun intended, the horrible things that he's done. You can only hear about things being rammed up your butt that don't belong there. Yes. Um, and things being stuck in your urethra that don't belong there and shit being bit off of you. That shouldn't that, be. That shouldn't be that you just finally go, I think I think we could close the book on that. <laughs> yeah. And I, apparently I can swallow more of it than... My husband, because when I was telling him, I think I'm going to stop writing about the murders at this point and telling him, he was like, uh, 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 like sticking way before I was. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, when I reach a sticking point, probably most listeners have already surpassed that yeah, point. Like they, they, that, was a, that was a mile back. <laughs> they were like, after the first one, we were good that game. <laughs> but you went into 25 of them. <laughs> and then you were like, okay, maybe too much. <laughs> maybe. Draw it back a little bit. On August 12th, 1974, the shoeless, sockless body of Gary Cordova, 23, is found dead in embankment. Cordova had just moved out of his house and was hitchhiking. Cause of death was acute intoxication due to alcohol and volume. So see, some of these guys, he was just able to get really drunk. And some of them I'm just briefly mentioning because they were on his list. Yeah. November 29th, 1974, a partially clothed body was found by the San Diego freeway. 19-year-old James Reeves is naked except for a bloody t-shirt. His pants have a bloodstained crotch laying by a tree that is where his legs, his legs are spread between two trees and one of the trees his bloody stained white Levi's are. He was found with a four foot long, three inch diameter tree branch shoved into his rectum. Four feet long, Jennifer. I'm five feet tall. He pretty much impaled him. Yes. Yes. He was gay lived with his parents, and had taken the car for a spin two days before. He ended the night at Ripple's, where Randy frequented, and that's where the family car was found later that day. The detectives just looked at their list, knowing that there had to be some kind of missing link between all the victims, but they just couldn't figure it out. I figured it out. They were gay, and they all went to the, pretty much the same bar and area. Mm-hmm. But there was nothing solid to say who it could be. The list they of victims. also probably didn't put all their effort into these cases. Well, there was apparently two detectives who you'll hear about later who really did try to do a lot, and they were just kind of stopped. The list of victims just kept growing, and the detective said he had to just keep writing, at this time, there are no known suspects. He said over and over and over after each victim, and he said it just got to the point where it was hard to even write, there are no known suspects. Especially with the these detectives are having to see these bodies. Like, reading about the few little details I'm giving is hard. Imagine seeing it with your eyes. You can't. That's There's nothing that you and will you, ever be able to do to get that out of your your head. You don't even have much of a break. You're, like, not even done finishing the autopsy and notes on one and another victim turned yeah, up. Randy Kraft already been out again, you know? He was fast and loose. We're going to go over one more victim, and then we're going to stop for this episode and carry on with part two. Two weeks later, a 17-year-old kid was found with a surveyor stick 
You know what a surveyor stick is, right? You know when you see those guys out and they're surveying? Oh, yeah. Yeah, a surveyor stick shoved up his rectum, and he was floating in the surf off Sunset Beach. His name was John Lyris. He'd been strangled and drugged through the sand and dumped into the ocean. Two sets of footprints indicated that two people did the dragging. He was last seen boarding a bus to head to the skating rink with new skates that he had received as a Christmas gift. Yeah. His mom had let him take his new skates and go off skating. And that is one of the first times that you see actual physical evidence that there had to be two people. There's no way that it was just him. No possible way. There's two sets of footprints. And they said the footprints weren't either side of the drag mark out to Mm -hmm. the ocean. So, I mean. It had to be. mm Mm-hmm. I mean, well, look at Dean Coral. He had the two accomplices. And then they looked back at, you know, some of the earlier bodies before his accomplices were involved. And they believe that he had other accomplices that may have been murdered. So, like, you don't know. You know what? That's a good point that maybe one of these victims were his accomplice and then he killed them. Mm -hmm. Because you'll see there was multiple times where two victims were killed at the same time. Mm-hmm. So one of them may have been his accomplice. Like, okay, this is it. I've had enough of you, Tony. Mm-hmm. You've gotten too mouthy. I'm just going to have to get a new one. <laughs> you know. Oh, man, look at Jennifer over there solving that damn case. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to end there and pick back up on some more deaths because we're not through with them. No. In the episode best two. And the worst is yet to come. <laughs> but we need a little break. So... <laughs> cigarette after that (laughs) (laughs) i need a lot after that i need a brain uh, bleach right now (laughs) but in the meantime i really need you guys to stay safe keep your head on a swivel and don't let anybody like randy craft come too close to home ever ever don't go to his home for sure Uh uh-uh don't (laughs) don't do it don't trust it make Uh -uh. me roam country roads (laughs) I can't. (laughs) Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Too Close to Home, don't forget to rate and subscribe to us on most platforms. Follow us on our social media at Too Close Home Pod on Facebook, at Too Close Podcast on Instagram, or if you have your own Too Close to Home experience, shoot us your story at Too Close to Home at Yahoo.com. Thanks for listening.